Oh, yeah. Hey, guys, what's going on? It's the Music Guy podcast. We're back for another episode. Uh, my name's Al Rowe. I'm a music guy. I play guitar. I sing. I make records. I write songs. Uh, I'm broadcasting to you from a brand new location. Please don't mind the disarray of my current place here. I moved yesterday to the beaches in Toronto, so I'm very excited to uh, to be setting up a new place here. Um, my co-host, partner in crime, coming at you all the way from Sarnia, Ontario. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Whitby, Ontario. Sarnia. Is, uh, Why did yeah, Sarnia I'm just come gonna make from? It, I'm just gonna make it. Well, because I said Ajax last week. Oh, I see. You know, I'm just gonna make up a different. That's a good uh, idea. I like that. I people like might that. confuse with that's uh, a tradition with Whitby. Yeah, I'll say Oshawa one time, and you'll uh, jump through the screen and strangle <laughs> me. Probably. Um, it's Michael Hebbs. I am Michael Hebbs. You're not wrong. That intro. How are you, was man? So crushingly loud. It was like, oh, bam. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I mean, it's not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> it is, but it's, it don't don't change it. I'm just saying yeah. it because you know it's fun times. But I'm I'm good. You know, uh, I borrowed a microphone, a Royer 121 from one of my friends, and I'm going to have fun with that, and hopefully not break it uh, because they're fucking sensitive. But um, yeah, that you know. I'm excited to talk to a mastering engineer, actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's get right to that. Our special guest today, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, Ruben Ghosh, owner of Mojito Mastering in uh, Toronto, Ontario as well. Uh, we're all sort of in the, in the Toronto area here. Uh, Ruben's mastered a ton of music over the last... Well, nearly a decade, I guess, at this point. Yep. Uh, some of the names, uh, Mono Whales, Tall Tale, I Am Hill, Alex St. Kitts, Curdy, Accent. Uh, Ruben's done a ton of mastering for uh, us agenda guys as we've been uh, sort of making records over the last few years. So Beverly Mahood, Dylan Wallace, John Anderson, among uh, a bunch of other great artists are all uh, sort of on that list. So welcome, Ruben, and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to come in, uh, come and do the show. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Um, could you give, I guess, maybe just, people just, um, I, I, the, the Coles notes on you <laughs> uh, and, and what Mojito is and, um, and what you do, uh, sort of, th- this podcast is sort of about how people make a living in the music industry um you know maybe they're super famous but i feel like that's how most people see the music yes. industry so you're either famous or you're broke um and th- those it's two things are very you know very possible both but yeah. i think there's a lot of us who are just just making a living doing a job that we love in an industry that we love can you give people um paint a picture for people of, of what you do and, and who you are uh, yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a mastering engineer, um, uh, basically a solo mastering engineer, solo shop. Um, yeah, as far as I mean, the reason I started Mojito was that uh, I, I did want to offer something in in the city that was a little bit more approachable for, like you said, some like independent artists that might not always have the the backing um, mm-hmm. to try something else, but still ha- maintain the level of quality that you would get anywhere else, and that's that's. Kind of the how it started and how why I decided to uh, start doing it on my own. Um, my um, and I've been basically been doing that since I'd say about 2012, full time. Um, my background: so I, I did a music degree at McGill, 
uh, university, jazz piano, music technology, and then a sound recording degree at uh, also at McGill, the master's program there, the tone master, and spent a little time in Banff uh, doing a work study program there. Um, and then, yeah, I did a lot of, a lot of internships, uh, early on in my career at different studios, mostly in Toronto, uh, spent a lot of time at the CBC, uh, spent some time recording at Humber, which is how you and I met right now. Uh, yes, a long, absolutely. Yeah. Long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And I did also did some work, uh, in post-production, uh, doing advertising and, uh, that type of stuff for a while. Um, the whole time I was just mastering, uh, basically on the side for a long time, uh, back in 2007, I spent a little bit of time working at a studio called the Lacquer Channel in, here in Toronto. And that's kind of where I oh, got yeah. to start mastering itself. Mm. Um, I wasn't there for very long, but it, it kind of gave me a background at the time on how, how real mastering <laughs> worked and how, what a, what a studio that works with major label artists and how that they operate and how you deal with that. Yeah. Um, since I left there, what would happen was since I had that background, other engineers who were mixing or recording something that, and their clients didn't have a budget to go somewhere else. They'd say, yeah, well, Ruben kind of likes doing this. <laughs> why don't we see if he'll do it? And I would just say, sure, why not? I, I wasn't really set up for it at the time, but I kind of did it. And that just kind of grew. It just kind of grew organically where people just started calling me. Yeah. And eventually I was getting more calls for mastering than other things and decided to do yeah. it full time. So, yeah. so you mentioned tone Meister. Um, I've heard that before. Could you explain what that is? Cause I, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it literally means like master of sound. Like I think in oh, German, I, I could be wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, the, the actual, the idea of it comes from, I think, I think it was, developed in the 60s in Germany, um, mainly for classical recording, because back then, if I, I think, you, you know, people have heard the stories of the Abbey Road engineers with the lab coats and, yeah, and, and all that. And I think that's mostly just myth. But still, okay. a lot of the engineers back then were, uh, were more technical. They, they often didn't have yeah. a musical background. So the Tonemeister program, when it started back then, was to combine... Uh, people who have a musical background, um, back then it would be a classical music background with a recording degree. And so oh. that when you were recording your, you know, your, uh, pianist or violin, <laughs> uh, your, uh, violinist and you want to record something, the person you're recording with actually has an idea of what should be happening musically, not just a, from a technical background. Yeah. That's, it's something we take for granted now. You know, I think most yes. engineers now or have a musical background, but back then that wasn't the way it worked. Yeah. It's funny. Cause yeah. engineer, like you, you always hear that term, like recording engineer. And like, I know some like engineer engineers and it's like, like there are some recording engineers that have that mindset where it is very technical, but it's yeah. like yeah. engineer engineer is a, like a different thing. You know? Yeah. We're, we are not real engineers <laughs> at all. <laughs> not building any bridges. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. I've heard a lot. I've, I've, I've interacted with a lot of people who are like, yeah, don't, don't call me an engineer. Cause I'm like, that's, that's a, that, that's not a, a real it's a misnomer. Uh, term for like what, what we do or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know how to, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know where I, I, cause I'm ignorant. I don't know where the, you draw the line in terms of when like an engineer becomes like an official term for somebody, I guess they need <laughs> a certain like degree or, or qualification or something, but it's kind of funny how that, that word has sort of, um, found its way into our sphere when 
you know. Just don't call yeah, them totally sound guys. They don't, yeah. they don't like that yeah. when you yeah. just call them yeah. sound guys. Sound guy, yeah. Ruben Which was funny, sound I think, guy. <laughs> I think Tone Meister is kind of a nice, uh, it sounds more. Yeah. It, Master it, of know, Tone. It's not engineer, but it sounds more impressive than yeah. sound guy. <laughs> so it's like a right. program, though, I guess, like uh, and like a, a method, which is cool. Instead it of just like, like, yeah, just listen to recordings and make them sound good. It's like, well, fuck. Yeah, it's a, it's supposed to be a little bit more structured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what um, drew you to mastering uh, as a process? Is something you, you were really interested in and wanted to take on? Uh, I just found it fascinating. So, like, when, when I started, I think, like, most people... Uh, I got interested in recording and production when I was in high school, playing in bands and mm-hmm. trying to record my own stuff. And this was like the late 90s. There wasn't much on the internet, but whatever I could find, yeah. there were a couple sites that talked about mastering and it was just, just it was fascinating to me, just black art, right? <laughs> of yeah. like, yeah. how can you do this, these small little things, but have such a big impact? Um, and so throughout school and throughout, uh, the beginnings of my career, I was just fascinated with it. So I, I would always master my own, the stuff I was already recording and producing on my own. Um, any bands I played in, I would master uh, the stuff on my own if we were recording it ourselves. And yeah. it was just a fascinating thing. And I think for whatever reason, it just clicked a bit more with me. Uh, like I'm also kind of an audiophile. I like messing around with speakers and amps and that type of thing. And I think the mindset fit me more than recording and mixing. Yeah, and frankly, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a better mastering engineer than I ever was—a mixing engineer or recording engineer. You said you were an audiophile, and one thing that I, I, I might have read this on your website—you built some of the stuff that you run your yeah. stuff through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you you build gear as well. In addition yeah. to that, that yeah. is so cool. So, you just did, did. How did you get into that? Like, you just started oh, that was so around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the fr- wow. the, fr- the first the first thing uh I built was this uh was my DAC that I send the audio through for the uh, the analog chain and it's a tube yeah. and transformer based uh digital audio converter. And that one was based that was a kit so it was a little bit easier to I see. to start with. Uh, yes. but once I had that on under my belt I I started building uh some stuff point to point like completely from scratch and Yeah, it's it's kind of fun. I wish I had more time for it, but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you could do like yeah. full time releasing products. That'd be crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really neat. Yeah, that's nuts. Like, so you can do that uh, just at home. Like, uh, what what sort of tools do you need to even do that? Is it just a soldering gun and and that's kind of you're good to go? Or well, the soldering gun's probably the most important one. Yeah, and, it, and a good one definitely makes a difference. I I tried doing this stuff earlier when I was younger, and I couldn't afford a good one. <laughs> Gave up pretty oh, quick. Yeah. Uh, but over the time, if, you know, you start to realize, okay, well, this tool would be really helpful, even if it's mm-hmm. even if it's not necessary. And so you just start gathering these little things here and there. So there's a lot of there's a lot more to it than the soldering iron, but I, you know, not a lot either. Yeah, you yeah. Can, like bare bones get by with. Like you yeah. don't need a you you don't need a workshop necessarily to. To tinker with gear. No, I mean, the um, first couple ones I did, I just did on you know, on my coffee table in my living room. Wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah, eventually um, I did get a workbench because that was yeah. ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is the, are the parts like, expensive? Like the one thing that I, I wonder about, like with gear manufacturing, so you get like, and I mean, we'll talk about this later, like gears can be so expensive, like speakers mm-hmm. and 
and like preamps, are they that expensive because of the, oh, this is our patented design? Or is it like the parts in this are just expensive or to make it is so complicated? It Honestly, it depends on the piece of gear and the company. Yeah. You know, like you'll see yeah. some pieces of gear where you go, why does this cost this much? It's, for, it's like nothing in yeah. here that costs. And then there's others mm. where you're like, I, like I've looked at, you know, um, not I wouldn't say clone, but to try to make something similar and you go, oh, OK, I get why this is really, really expensive. <laughs> you know, you start looking at some of the parts and yeah, and you yeah. can go crazy like the audiophile world. There's some oh. pretty expensive <laughs> yes, things, which is why I want to build stuff, because I want to build stuff that was more in that realm. And, yes. you know, I don't mm. have $50,000 to pay off for a single line amp. That type yes. of <laughs> so, Yeah, absolutely. So well, building cool it thing, makes a lot more sense. For me, and it's it, this is a weird tie-in, but it's like same with like used gear, buying used gear. And like I do the same thing with my guitars. I buy like, you know, a pretty reasonable body for it. Uh, and then, you know, I put in, I don't make the pickups, but I put in particular pickups and I've changed the bridge and it's constantly like tweaking little things here and there. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, this does sound like a 60s strap, but you know, they're selling off. Maybe I'll change the bridge to, you know, stainless steel. Cause that's what they used. And it's like, before I go out and buy a $30,000 60 strat, I want to exhaust every option before that to get <laughs> yeah. the closest sure. tone, you know? Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's also it's really informative because you go through that process and you know which components really make the biggest yeah. difference in the sound and you know what you're looking for so even if, i think if you know even if you were in a position to buy that the strat the the real one you would know what you were yeah. looking for yeah that's true right. that's true yeah. i mean i don't have ears nearly as good as yours but uh <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> um so maybe we maybe we've uh skipped over something yeah uh fundamental here but like can we uh, can, can you concisely answer the question because uh, i have so much trouble with this when i'm especially when i'm explaining to people who don't um who aren't in this world and don't sort of know what goes on under the hood of of making a song like what is mastering <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's like it's, we all kind of know what it is but it's like how yeah. do you how do you how do you explain what it is well, it's it's basically it's the bridge between what the artist finishes at the mix stage and the manufacturing or the distribution stage. Um, mm. So traditionally, you know, when we were talking final, there was a technical process and it started off as solely a technical process because you had your mix on tape um, and you had to get it on this record. And there were completely different formats with completely different technical requirements. So you needed a mastering engineer who could essentially do a one to one copy. But knowing the limitations of both mediums because you could have a the, your record stylist the needle like fly out of the record yeah, right if it was too exactly too yeah, much low end or something yeah yeah there's like out of phase components or there's too much bottom end or you know things like that uh, whereas on the yeah. tape it, you could you could put whatever you want on the tape it was fine it, it might saturate but yeah. nothing would prevent it from playing right Right on. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's where it started. Um, and then eventually back in the 60s, uh, Doug Sachs, I think, was the first independent mastering engineer who went, hey, while we're doing this process, I can, I think we can make better sounding records. And he started mm. to make some more creative decisions, say, okay, well, this, this track will sound a lot better if it's a little bit brighter or a little bit darker or the bass yeah. is a little bit heavier or whatever that is. And it slowly grew from there where it also became a creative process and a technical process. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now with, you know, where it's, if we're talking digital, 
uh, you know, digital distribution, there's no real technical limitation. Anyone can put out a track. There's no real issues. So yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly a creative process now. Um, but there's also uh, the way I think of it, there, there are usually these loudness, you know, there's, there's a certain sort of range of loudness where different artists want their tracks to be. And that's sort of the technical lim- limitation. So the idea is I might have to take something that's pretty dynamic and fit it into this sort of box. And how do I make that sound gigantic, even if the dynamic range is actually kind of small. And then there's the, you know, the, like the creative side is just seeing if we can enhance the music and take, you know, take the mix and make the best presentation of that music as possible. Yeah. As, you know, for the listeners. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, such a hard thing to get across to like an artist who's like trying to save a buck. He's like, Oh, can't you just master it? And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you can, yeah. I, technically, I, mean, I can, yeah. I, can. Yeah. I can do a and, lot of things. It doesn't mean I should do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the other thing, right? The, the mastering, the way I see it, it's, it's a service, right? So yeah, I think with any service, it's you're trying to offer something that the client can't do themselves or they yeah. might not have the time to do. So, uh, you know, there's clients I work with who probably could master their stuff, but it might take them a lot longer than, than I would take, Yeah, you know, and also maybe, you have better ears, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I, I guarantee you, like, I mean, well, like, yes I and no. I mean, I, there's some artists I work with have killer ears. They just might yeah. not know how to translate what they're hearing to what they should sure. do technically. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, like I, I work with some, some engineers, like some mixers who also master and they, they're great, but they might yeah. send it to me because they want a second opinion. Right? There we go. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I think yeah. that's one of the most, uh, as a guy who mixes tracks, like that is the most valuable yeah. side of mastering is like, there's a sec, you get a second perspective who hasn't had their head buried in the song for the last week yeah. and making tweaks to, the kick drum and completely forgetting about the vocal and stuff like that. And like they can, they have that macro view and, and, and that coupled with, it's like a, uh, a point of no return in a way. It's like, once it's mastered, it's done. Yes. So if you're going to go and it's important to go, I think it's important to go through this process, but if you're going to go through this process, you have to be confident with the mix that you're presenting and then when you've gone through the process, you can let it go and you can stop second guessing. It's done now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, you know, rather than just tweaking a mix for the rest of your life and never releasing the song, I, I always recommend to people, even if they don't want to, uh, you know, spend a whole ton of money um, going to the best studio or getting the best mixing engineer or the best producer, still spend the, you know, hundred to whatever 200 bucks i guess is the most it costs per song for master to get it mastered oh no it yeah. goes up it could be it oh, could be it way up from there. oh yeah yeah oh, okay yeah yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> crazy that's the world i'm familiar with but yeah. Well, yeah. i mean well um, i mean one way to think about it let's say you're you're you know you're doing a taylor swift record can you imagine yeah. what the marketing and publicity budget is for that record right so what's, right. what's oh, yeah. paying $10,000, $15,000 to get it mastered properly? And sure, sure. You know what yep. I mean? It's nothing. And yep. if, you, if you're going to, the people, like the mastering engineers who command that money, not only are they really good, but they've been doing it for so long that there's a level of trust. Yeah. Right? Right. So yeah. The, yeah. the labels could go, you know what? This guy's been doing it for 40 years. 
So yeah. it, we don't care that we're going to spend $10,000, even, even if somebody else, like maybe I could do just as good a job or somebody else yeah. can do just as good a job, but I've been doing it for about 10 years and they've been and doing also it And also too, like they yeah. don't, it's one of those things where it's like, because the people making those decisions, like the business people, they don't really like have any, they're like, aren't as tuned into this stuff. They're not going to know, you know, like, like say for instance, the difference between if I mastered it, which would be a disaster. <laughs> and then say, for instance, if someone really fancy mastered it, but like the legit people will know, be like, oh yeah, like this was mastered by some but fucking they, yeah, idiot. Yeah, and, and they know, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it, exactly. I mean, there's, a, to it. And, there's also a, a producer involved who's, yes. it's all maybe going to come back to, you know, like somebody like David Foster or... Or uh, you know somebody huge like that's gonna know. Yeah, you know, they're, they're gonna have a they're gonna have the person they want to use, and they're gonna recognize if it sounds. Yeah, I guess is that the decision maker? Like the the producer is generally like, I like this mastering guy. Like, I would say usually, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's usually the producer yeah. or, or the you know maybe the mixer if they're if there's no producer, the mixer might have their yeah. guys. Yeah. And and like for my my clients, I think it's mostly mixers and producers uh, who, who are at least that's in terms good. of like. Yeah, in terms yeah. of rich repeat business. And it's the same thing, you know, on it's say in terms of like let's say, you know, mid tier mastering guy like myself, my I present a certain level of uh or I, I can give my clients a certain level of confidence, you know, if they've worked with me before, they send it to me and they just know yeah. it'll be what it is. Right? As yeah. opposed to let's yeah, say yeah. if they as opposed to going to someone cheaper, um yes. or someone who's just starting out. I have an L1 limiter. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's it. And then it's like, well, great. You know, like, it's like, you cannot rely on me to master. Yeah. And if I can just follow up on that and just pump Ruben's tires a bit, because he's a very modest person, (laughs) but like working with, working with, 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 with you as I've done for the, I don't know how many years now, maybe feels like maybe five or more, you know, um, since I've been mixing records on a level that, you know, we've been able to, to afford um, uh, having mastering engineers, um, you know the workflow is uh, you're very you're very clear about how the process works. You're very uh, easy to you know get along with, easy to work with. Especially if if somebody's coming to you for the first time and they're like, I don't know what an ISRC code is. I don't know what any yeah. of this is. It's like you lay all this stuff out. It's like don't worry, this is really easy. You just have to do this, and okay, cool. And like if there's revisions. It's always, I, I, I you know, I, I'm just always so, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, but you're, you're so easy to come to with a revision. I'm just like, <laughs> hey, man, like, I don't Thanks. know, I think the low end might be a little bit this or that. Like, I don't know. And you're like, no problem, no problem. I'll have it to you today. And it's yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah. awesome. You know, so just like that kind of, um, you know, being super easy to work with and, and the quality of the work and the... Um, the speed at which uh, you're able to turn projects yes. around oh. is awesome. So I could not recommend Mojito highly <laughs> enough to oh, anybody else yeah. listening. Thanks, guys. I feel the need to, to put that in. <laughs> uh, hopefully I said all of that right. In your Tone Meister program and just generally developing yourself as like an engineer, you originally were doing mixes as well too. Yeah. Were you? Oh, yeah, yeah. so I was mixing so- for a while, uh, record and recording, and I and yeah. the Tonemeister program you 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 do all styles, and because McGill, of course, yes. has a classical and jazz um, focus musically there, so we did a lot of classical recording, 
like you know putting wow. up a couple of microphones in a hall doing that type of stuff a lot of jazz recording yeah. live off the floor and yeah so like and did you was there ever like a component where it was like a structured like this is eager training you know in terms of this or was it more so just you know putting you in a bunch of different situations and and you know no both yeah there was struggle. we, we yeah. had like a formal actual ear training program wow. uh there was also a class just on it i think they called it it's been a while uh aesthetics so where it's essentially okay. is a class and there was six of us only six of us in the class and you just you know spent a couple hours listening to music and discussing how these recordings sound and how they compare to other recordings and which is really valuable and um yeah. and then there was you know and then you had um studio time so you can yeah. you would you know, range for musicians to come in and you could do whatever you wanted <laughs> that. Yeah. So they, that, that part was really not structured. And at least when I was there in the yeah, sense yeah. that you just had to present, I think five or six finished recordings by the end of the year. Um, and then you had to write up, you had to sort of justify how you, which microphones you do, why you did it. And yeah, it was all academic. So I mean, it was cool. pseudo academic. It was, that yeah, it was sounds fun. so yeah. much yeah. more legit than like, just because I hear about these recording programs, like not not that one, but just other ones that seem more like cash grabs, whereas mm-hmm. you, that to me sounds so much more legit, like in value wise and like. Ugh. Yeah, I, I I thought it was great, and there were I mean there were the prof, the professors and instructors and everything were were fantastic. You know, you know we got yeah. to work with George Massenberg, who's just a legend. Oh, wow. Yeah, I get so to to expand on sort of what is mastering, if we can get into. Uh, a bit more of the actual technical side of things. What sort of processes are, is the material going through, generally speaking? Um, and maybe this would be easy to do in the context of like a rig rundown. Like, what what gear do you have? What are you using? And wh- right. wh- what happens to the music between when it gets to you and when it, when it's finished? I mean, it's really simple. It's it's simpler than. It- people might expect which is why it could be hard to <laughs> understand sometimes yes um mm-hmm. uh i mean i would say the, the first thing is just bringing up the level to a competitive mm-hmm. level assuming we're doing like a pop kind of thing it doesn't yeah. have to be squashed unless the client wants it but just it usually needs to be at least in a sort of competitive range and mm-hmm. you know there's different ways to do that um you know limiting maybe sometimes just running through analog gear and pushing the level there a little higher hotter um, and, and that's on a project by project basis. I'll try different things and see what sounds best musically for, for each project. Um, you know, and then there's tonally just seeing if, if, if the balance is off, if like, if the bottom end is, you know, does it feel big enough? Does it feel warm, punchy, deep, depending on what it needs musically relative, let's say to the vocals and the guitars, yeah. um, addressing that does a vocal is a vocal clear, which is a big one. <laughs> Can you actually hear the vocalists? Mm. Is it? Is it clear, but it's also, is it full? Is it not thin? Is, you know, there's all that stuff. Is the top end balanced to the bottom end? And so I said, getting that EQ right, EQ right is probably one of the most important parts, you know, after just bringing up the level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Compression, compression, I think a lot of people think compression is a big part and it's, uh, it's not something I'd use on a lot of records. And I think there's a lot of mastering engineers who would say the same. It's really, um, yeah. I mean, it depends if, if, if a track really is just, has a such a wide dynamic range that it's distracting. Like if you can't listen to it without turning up and down your volume, then of course, we'll sure. bring some compression. But these days that's pretty rare. <laughs> you know, most people yeah. have a pretty solid handling handle of that. So, um, 
so compression maybe and you know if you, if it is it's like just tipping a little bit um but that those are the main processes you know like i know you can see there's software things that you'll see like enhancers and all this widening and yes. all that stuff and that's not really that's not part of my workflow or at least not unless i really really need to salvage something that's uh that's mm. completely messed up that's almost like restoration yeah. at that point. Resting, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and sometimes that's what you need to do because uh, sometimes it can't go back to the mix and something's really just technically off. Um, and, or sometimes people just didn't hear it the right way. <laughs> and, yeah. um, mm. you know, so and you just need to fix some things. And, and the, if they're happy, they're happy. Great. But it's yeah. not the type of thing I would go into. I wouldn't do any of those processes on my first pass. Um, yeah right out the gate yeah yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i would I would do that only if the client comes back and says oh actually it's not we're not really getting what we need and the mix is really far off it's really funny because yeah. it's it's like uh it's another one of those things where when you explain this to an artist it's like oh well you know they're not doing that much and it's like well it, you're you're paying them for their their obviously their ears and their experience and like the gear and like all that stuff, it's like, yeah, they're not, they're not doing much, but they're making the right decisions, you know, that you wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to, like, I wouldn't be able to make those decisions, you know, like, uh, well, it, take, it takes time, right? Up. And I probably yeah. wouldn't have been able to a few years ago you know, or years before that. And it's, yeah. uh, and it's just, uh, you know, at this point, I've probably done a, at least a few thousand, you know, different oh my God. masters, right? Uh, yeah. If not more. Mm-hmm. Or, um, so and every time it's like a puzzle every i find every master mastering project is almost like this puzzle that you have to solve yeah. <laughs> and every time you do it mm-hmm. it's sort of yeah. just another one that another piece of experience that i have in the back of my head that i can kind of go back to on a future yeah. project so, yeah. um so just to touch on a couple of uh things that you you did bring up there um so number one like for people who don't uh, aren't familiar with this world uh as as much like the process that a master engineer takes affects the whole track yes yeah that you're listening yeah. to whereas like if somebody's mixing like when ruben's saying is the vocal clear enough is it full enough like if you're a mixing engineer you could just turn the vocal up mm-hmm. without affecting anything else but what a mastering engineer has to do at that point is they have to say well the part of the vocal that i want that I can maybe boost is like in the three to five K range. And I'm going to bump that up, but that's also going to brighten the guitars. So there's a big, big balancing act there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why you'll see, um, you know, people's mastering change. They're, they're like boosting 0.3 DB at whatever frequency. It's like, is that doing anything? Well, yeah, it's actually doing a lot because it's affecting every component of the track right so it's actually cumulative it's a huge huge difference um and and so the second thing is which is so interesting is the quote-unquote loudness wars which i i want to say was more of a a a, a 2010s through (laughs) or maybe even like a 2000s to 2010 yeah i was thinking it was more problem i think it was peak was probably around 2005 six yeah Um, and and, i mean it's still there don't get me wrong but i i think there's more of an understanding of it now so you don't get things that are completely destroyed as much uh so can you speak to what that was and what that resulted in and and where we're at kind of now well it was just i mean uh psychoacoustically i think humans any anytime something's louder we kind of perceive it as better that's just 
yes. the way it is. That's the way, you know, we hear things. And so people just wanted their record to be louder than the next guy's record, right? whether it was on the radio or in uh, CD shufflers. If you remember back in the 90s, they'll have, they have these hundred CD shufflers and, things yeah. like that. and people. Yeah, you'd want your record to be louder. Or I think more importantly would be, on, you know, at a radio station when they were they would have their programming meetings and listening to new music, putting on new stuff. You mm. wouldn't want your track to come on really, really quiet if they True. were, you know, if they're deciding what they're going to put on the air um, or if we, or in a grant grant application meeting, like an awards mm-hmm. meeting, yeah. you know, all these things where, you know, you might have a room full of people pre COVID <laughs> like yeah. people actually in a room listening to stuff. COVID um, probably yeah. hasn't affected your job that much at all. No, for me, I, I work <laughs> yeah. by myself. It's great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but the idea is, yeah, you don't want your track to come in quieter because a lot of people would just perceive that as worse. Right. So yeah. what would now this, this has been an issue you know, since vinyl days, this is not a new thing. It's just that with vinyl, there was a physical limitation. At a certain point, the the needle would just, you know, skip and it would come out, and you ha- you just couldn't go any louder. Uh, that's not yeah. the case with CDs. <laughs> you could all you could put whatever you want on a CD; it'll just distort, right? Yeah, and, sure. And there was a point, I think, in the early two thousands, up to probably about two thousand eight nine, where you would get, you would put on a record and it was just straight up distortion. <laughs> and yeah. it, would, it, it seemed like it was loud and it kind of, I guess it kind of was, but you know, and, and that's where there was a lot of, there was a lot of backlash, of, at least within the industry. Nobody cares outside the industry. Nobody cares about this stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, but, right. Yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah. So like, as you approach, um, there's something called the volume ceiling. I'm getting a little, I'm wading into territory that I'm not 100% confident in. So please <laughs> which correct we'll talk me about if I'm wrong. later as there's well. Some, too. <laughs> yeah. There's something called a volume ceiling, right? Which is just sort of this is as loud as it, things can get in the digital world before you start experiencing distortion. Yeah. And not in the way, like not cool distortion, like a sweet, like old really bad guitar distortion. amp. Yeah. Or, yeah, like yeah. if you've ever heard anybody like yell into a, uh, like a a webcam mic or something, and it I'm not going to do it now. I was very tempted to, yeah. <laughs> but no, um, I won't do that to your you ears. Know, and, and and that's sort of something that came with digital because an analog distortion kind of sounded good for the yeah, most or, part, or at least it's softer. Like it's not a, yeah. it's not this really harsh distortion. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, it wouldn't always sound good, but it it was better than digital. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas digital yeah. is like. A hundred percent. You never want digital you know distortion. What we'll do? Right. When we yeah. edit this, I think you should, for the people out there, just quickly just, paste in a hard, a hard clipping. You know? <laughs> okay. I, I posted I'll, an I'll Instagram video intentionally that had hard clipping, and it was like it was oh, yeah. me live, yeah, and I was yeah, recording yeah, on any my of phone, those. and people yeah. hated it, and I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so there's ways to um to get around or like mitigate this issue, right? Because you can still get records somehow, you you know, it's not just turn it all the way up as loud as you can. And that, that works, you know, it's like you're, you're there's a, they're able to squeeze out a little bit more volume, a little bit more volume somehow. uh, And this is where I don't fully understand, but by sort of, um, you know, I hear 
uh, tales of like mastering engineers mastering above zero, which is like above the, <laughs> the volume ceiling, and then like converting yeah. it back down. And and there's all, there's different ways, but as you said, Ruben, it's like at some point you you start having distortion that's noticeable. And I, I remember there was a record by Metallica. I want to say yeah. it was called. Death it was magnetic, death magnetic, I think. Yeah, death magnetic, which and was, people like. I, love I think that, that was the first knew. time. First time it really it, it got into the public, like the wider public beyond sort of engineers. Yeah. Was when that came out, and it was like, oh, what is this? <laughs> What's going on uh, here? Yeah. Right? Did they recall that and like and no. fix it or no? It stayed so, that way. No. So in the end, so. It's funny because I was actually looking into this <laughs> a couple of weeks ago for some reason and see, I was reading some posts from, uh, from back when that happened. Um, it's going back, I think it was 2008, 12 years ago. Mm. Um, my feeling on the, on the loudest stuff and, and, you know, how much distortion or limiting or compression to me, that's an artist decision, right? To me, mm. whatever, at the end of the day, the artist gets final say most of the time. It's pretty rare, even, you know, at higher levels that someone's going to tell the artists, you know, you were absolutely going to do this to your music and you don't have no say. Right. Sure. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and you might include that. The producer might be part of that. Like when I say the artist, the producer, the production team might be part of these decisions. And um, in that case, Lars, Lars, uh, I forget his last name. Uh, Lars, Lars Ulrich. Ulrich. Yes. He, he put out a statement said, uh, this is what we lo- th- wanted it to sound like. The mixes sounded like that uh, before the mastering yeah. stage. Um, they, okay. Right. Uh, and I think Ted Jensen mastered it and even suge- even said, like, that's how it was mixed. And even I after all, all the complaints, that. Lars was like, I just put it on the car and it sounds awesome. And he's like, this is what yeah. I wanted it to sound like. Yeah. And so I think at that point, I think for us, it's who are, who are we to say that artistically that's the wrong decision? That was that's their sure. art. Right. They they yeah, wanted right, it to but, sound like yeah. that. Um, I don't like it, but that doesn't yeah. matter. I don't. I don't have to like it, right? Um, to yeah, me, right, it's yeah. like I'm sure there were people, you know, when they first heard Hendrix, were like, "Man, turn that distortion off, man! What? The, yes. You know? yeah, like, what is right, that? Right, like, right. You know, what's that, what's with that well, sound back? That's that wrong. They can't listen to <laughs> screaming. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Music yeah. Screaming, yeah. Right? It's like, oh, yeah, exactly. I can't enjoy that. Exactly. But some people love it. Exactly, and you know, at the end of the day, that's that was what they wanted. No one forced them yeah. into that. Right. That yeah, like, yeah. No, no one's telling Metallica what to do. Let's put it that way. There's nobody <laughs> yeah. on the production. There's no mastering Lars engineer. So much shit. Lars gets so much shit as a drummer. And I'm like, yeah. man, he's in Metallica. Like yeah. they, they, if he was bad, they yeah. would have gotten rid of him like 30 years. Yeah, ago. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's what, that's yeah. what they want. And you don't have to listen to it. Right. Yep. No one's forced into yep. you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can listen to something Just else. He doesn't know like how yeah. to read music. Like who gives a shit, man? Like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so j- just to one more thing, just to cap this off, uh, this particular topic, um, recently, semi recently, Apple music, Spotify programs like that have sort of, have they set a limit or have they done something where it sort of reels back in the desire to push to the absolute ceiling of loudness? In theory, yes, but no. <laughs> so, um, okay. they, most of them now have a certain sort of normalization going on where they try to have a target level and they adjust everything to that level. So that if you got, you know, if you're on, if you got a Spotify playlist and you're playing through it, every, you're not, it's not jumping up and down yeah. too much. Um, in theory, <laughs> first of <laughs> right. all, 
They all have different targets. Every streaming platform has a different That's target. That's going to be a headache. Um, yeah. yeah. Two, you can turn it off. Like, I turn them off on mine. Mm. I, I don't have yeah. it because I don't okay. want... I want to just hear the record as is. Yeah, um, yeah, So people can turn it off. Um, three, they don't always publish exactly what they're doing. And, and there are plugins that will... And sites that will give you these kind of general targets. But yeah. my experience has been that it's not super accurate. And because there's no... Because the industry as a whole hasn't decided on one specific target you can't yes. just rely on it so a few years ago when this started coming out i i would have clients asking me saying hey okay this is just going for streaming let's just attempt for this specific target i said no problem you know that's my job like i said i'm a service business so i said okay and you know what would happen they would put it on a playlist and it was super quiet <laughs> with mm, with the yeah. normalization with all the stuff and the quiet records are still quiet. The loud records are still loud. It The difference might be a little bit more like this, but <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. And what you'll find is with the major labels, they still they still want them loud. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not enough. distorted. Like, you know, it'll, you'll get bounced back from la- like the production team if, if I send stuff out that's distorted. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and over compressed. But they st- everyone's, everyone wants it loud. <laughs> everyone yeah, wants sure. a loud record. <laughs> Uh, it's a funny thing like i i didn't believe it when i read about that i i didn't believe it at all and like i'm i'm you know i'm not a great mixer or anything but as soon as i did mixing and even just with guitars you know you hear a really quiet guitar uh amp in in a store versus you know one that's just blaringly loud and it's like oh yeah the loud one sounds amazing yeah like yeah exactly and that's it. And so, a lot of it's psychoacoustics, right? So it's, I, th- I think this is where people run into problems and why in the early days of those loudness wars, things sounded really bad is that I think people hadn't developed the techniques to get things sure. loud. Mm. And, and a lot of it's not about just squashing things and getting a high RMS level with your stuff. Cause you can have something that looks loud on a meter and sounds really small. And I've seen records mm, that will okay, actually measure yeah, way yeah. lower and sound huge and sound big and they jump out of the speakers. Yeah. And that's also why I don't really care much about these targets because they, they don't really, they're not fully accurate in terms of how we hear. Sure. Right. So it's, too com- it's more complicated. It's more complicated. Way like more complicated or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 You just got to use your ears mm. at the end. Yeah. It always comes back to that. Yeah. Just use your ears. <laughs> I have a question, um, and this may be a dumb question, but in terms of mastering or just mixing, do you have any records that you listen to and you're like, this is like a work of art, like from like a sonic perspective, beyond almost even like the music, you know? like Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think they're tied. Like, they're you know, they, they go together. So, like... I, I, you know, any records that I use as a reference, I've got to like musically because if I don't like it musically, it's sure. to me. It, yeah, they're they're one and the same to me. That's why I mean, like back when I was coming up, uh, like at school, a lot of people used to use Steely J- Steely Dan's uh, Aja as like an engineering masterpiece. And I yes, could not. Man. And to anyone who likes that record, I'm sorry. I apologize, but I cannot listen to that record. Al's, Al's <laughs> a Steely Dan fan. I love I've, the Dan. Oh, I can't. Love I was like, oh, so boring. Uh, yeah. No, I feel you. Know, I, 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 I accept that other people don't don't like them. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I, I respect them, but I can't get into that, you know. And so people would yeah. be like, yeah. you should use this as an engineering reference. And I was like, I, I, I do not want my records to sound like that. <laughs> Just yes. Know, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, there's I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, I recently, sh- uh, a mixer producer named Sean Everett, uh, who actually um, was in Banff with at the same time. And he's now just killing oh, it. Really? And so a lot of the records he's done, he, um, uh, he did the Alabama shakes record from a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, yeah. He's, and he's done a bunch. He was nominated just last week for three more best engineer Grammys <laughs> and yeah. the stuff he wow. does sounds great to me, super loud and compressed, but I, I dig it. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was a big fan of uh, a mixer named Serban Ganea. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. I actually don't know. <laughs> He's re- uh, he he mixes probably. I mean, like if you go on the Billboard Top Forty, I bet half of the stuff is being mixed by him. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he does a lot yeah, of okay, Max Martin's yeah. productions, and uh, he's a pretty low key guy. He doesn't do a lot of interviews or anything like that. But his stuff is just yeah. yeah. It's pop. It's Top Forty, but it just sounds great. Like it just yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, he's fine. He's he's able to find that balance between commercial and you know uh, artistic taste that I think is just fantastic. Okay. Do you do yeah. a lot of referencing like mid job? Like if I send you a pop track, are you pulling up something of his and sort of saying, "All right, is this in the ballpark?" Or do you sort of trust your ears and only go to it if you're having problems? Yeah, I'll do. I used to do that a lot more, and then I found that I was actually. Yeah. Uh, it would cause me problems uh, more than mm. it would help uh, because then you try to, you end up focusing more on that reference than the actual song that you're working from. And truly at sure. the end of the day, I think any piece of great uh, music and it should stand on its own. It should be its own thing. Right. Um, mm. So I, I've tried to not do that as much. Uh, so I'll usually just check, check it out later in the process, like maybe near the end, mm. just to make sure that I haven't gone too far off one way or the other. And, and also just check levels and just say, okay, you know, I know this is going to be on the playlist with this track, this type sure. of music. How's it feel compared to, to those, those type of right. things. Yeah. Just see if they're in the same universe. Yeah, exactly. Kind of I just want to make yeah. sure that they're, and also, you know, in a more micro scale, after I've been working on a track for, 15, 20 minutes, uh, mastering captures pretty fast, <laughs> but, but yeah, even yeah, 15, yeah. 20 minutes, I might lose perspective. So it's sometimes good to just like put something else on and go, Oh yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I struggle with that mixing because I've had so many aha moments where I've like, I've referenced a track and been like, okay. Um, and, and I'll try to choose something that's, I, so oftentimes a client will recommend, they'll be like, Hey, these are a couple tracks that like, I kind of, kind of like like maybe you know and you know sure enough it's like oh yeah these songs sound pretty similar to the song that you know like not in a not in a uh, negative way but it's like yeah these are a great fit mm-hmm. and i'll listen to it and i'll be like oh wow like i didn't realize my vocal sounded so dark or i didn't realize that you know my cymbals were so quiet or something and it's just it changed but then the flip side is also true like you're saying it's like are you trying to recreate this song that you're referencing mm-hmm. or are you mixing the song that you're mixing and, and you yeah. don't want to lose that that uh that staying true to that that the music that you're actually sort of working, working on. on so yeah. I, I haven't found the haven't found the balance yet but yeah. i have found <laughs> it helpful from time to time to to sort of um 
you know, I, I, I do find that I learn something new every time I do it. So there, yeah, I, I think there it's valuable go. to do. I, I do think that everyone should do it. I, I mean, I know at least there are definitely mastering engineers who don't, and that's that works for them. Um, I think if you're mixing, you definitely should um, just to make sure your vocals, especially, are in the right ballpark of where they should be. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think as long as you're you find yeah find that balance of saying okay, we need it to be in this kind of ballpark. But also try to bring whatever you're bringing, like whatever your unique mm. things that you mm. bring to the production that you don't mm. forget that. Like maybe, you know, like, for instance, you might have a reference track and you go, all right, this sounds great, but I just like more bottom end, you know, and that's sure, okay, yeah, yeah. right. You're just like, I like to have the bass up a little bit more. Cool. Right. That's that's yeah, fine. Right. It doesn't yeah. have to be exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I find interesting is like, what does it take in a job, especially like in like our sort of like field of like music to get into it in terms of like so many things like gear, um, in terms of like experience, obviously we've already talked about that, but the gear thing is interesting with mastering. Like, like I know that a properly treated room is apparently super, 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 super important, but like gear wise, like what else do you need to be a, you know, a mastering engineer? Um, you know, I think there are really only a couple things you need. This, I think this applies to mixing engineers too. Yeah. Uh, I have this theory that you really only need three things. You need really, really great monitors. Like you have, a, you need to have, yeah. or at least a monitoring system it doesn't have to be expensive. It could be, uh, it just has to be a monitoring system that you trust and lets you hear music and helps you hear differences in different tracks. Uh, yeah. Like you don't want a monitor that's always bright or always dark. Something that allows sure. you to hear contrasts. Uh, you have to have great taste in music, and great could be it's subjective. It it could be yeah. It just has to be great for your client base, right? Right. Yeah. For the people that you're working with, you just have to be aligned with whoever you're working with, and they have to agree. Because obviously, if you think something's awesome, they don't. Then that's not going to work out. And if Bad you think times. something's awesome, <laughs> nobody does. You'll never be in business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no business, right? But you can always find a niche, right? That uh, so yeah. I, I think developing your musical tastes and your sonic tastes, um, and then having those monitors that tell you, you know, can allow you to hear yeah. that. And then the the last thing is just you have to give a shit. <laughs> you just have to, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you just like once you if you have good taste and you can hear something's wrong, you have to actually need to spend the time to figure out how to make it better. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because I think there's people who don't do that. Like they know something's off, but they'll leave it to later. Like the recording engineers, who will leave it to the mixer. There's mixing engineers. who will leave it to the mastering engineer. And that never works out. Right. Um, Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. But those three, I think you have those three things. That's all you need because now the software, man, it's software is so good. Like you don't need hardware anymore. Uh, I yeah. mean, hardware's wow, fun. Okay. It's great, but Serbin Ganea, who I, who I just mentioned, has been working mixing in the box since like 2004 or five before it was wow. cool. <laughs> you know, before yeah. the plugins were yeah. as good as they are now, and dude has more number one hits than anybody ever. Right? He's mixed more yeah, <laughs> with zero analog gear. Right? So, yeah. you know, it works for him. Um, not to say that analog you you shouldn't use analog gear. It's just, if it works yes. for you, great. Yes. But you don't need it. So, like, those are the three things I think you need. They're yes, like really, really accurate, like, like good monitors and good monitoring. And I, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that could be. I mean, this. You know, you said the room, and the room obviously helps. Uh, 
But, yeah. you know, if you're on a budget, that could be a really good set of headphones. Right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to master on headphones, but I think you could mix on them. Yeah, you know? there you go. Yeah. I've been mixing on these for the last year. I haven't had right. room to set up speakers until yeah. until right now, actually. Literally so, today. Be, and honestly, with COVID, yeah. uh, like this year, mm-hmm. a lot of the lot of the engineers I've worked with have been mixing on headphones because they're at home often with their spouse yeah. and mm-hmm. they can't, you know, either they don't have room, but you also can't just have music blaring if somebody else is working next to you. Sure. This is true. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of people working on headphones and... If it's comfortable, if it works for you, that's great. Like for me, I wouldn't want to do it just because I think I, my ears would get tired, and you know. Mm. Uh, so I, yeah, I still there prefer is having- a bit of uh, yeah, there is a bit of fatigue from I'm wearing headphones more than ever over the last yeah, yeah six yeah. to eight months, and and there is a different kind of fatigue that comes from that. It is yeah, mm. and, and like for me, I like I like to feel the bass in the room, and and that that informs my decisions. Um, yeah, but you know. Like I said, it's all these are just tools, right? So that works for me. What works for me might yeah. not work for someone else. So, yeah. As a mixing engineer myself, again, engineer is not the right word for what I do, but <laughs> as a guy who mixes mixes records, dude, trying my best here. Um, so you know, I I find I I don't know if you guys had this experience, but when the first time you recorded. Uh, yourself maybe singing or playing an instrument uh, or you had somebody record you and you heard it back and it's like, wow, this is a magnifying glass on my playing or my singing. <laughs> yeah. You could hear everything. I didn't realize I did. I didn't realize my hand made that sound when I moved on the strings of the guitar or whatever. And it's like, you can hear everything. When I get my mix back from a mastering engineer like yourself, Ruben, now that magnifying glass on my mix, I'm like, oh man, I can hear all yeah. this stuff that I didn't realize, and like, I want to change this, I want to change that, and 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 at that point, it's it's too late, obviously. But I mean, that's kind of that's just the way it is. A record is never truly done. You just have to you have a deadline. So yes, exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, but I'm wondering, um, uh, is there anything that you tend to get? from mixing uh mixing people that you sort of say yeah usually there's a build-up at 300 for example or like you you ask for the secret sauce al (laughs) yeah well or just like what to look out for because i know like people uh i don't know if this is a problem now as much as it maybe was in the past but people sending stuff in that's too loud for Mm. you to work with um is there anything that you could throw out there to us mixing folks to be like hey like if you do this a little bit more like this it'll make everybody's life easier <laughs> um, i don't know if there's anything like that well i said you know as far as frequencies the bottom end is always like i almost always have to do some work in the bottom end because just because it's really hard to yeah. get a modern environment that really shows that accurately where it's sure. i would say it's more or less like it's obviously everyone everyone has slightly different things that need being adjusted but i would say that's where i have to do the most amount of work um i would say the biggest it's just more of a suggestion than a critique on on stuff i i think most people don't mix their stuff or listen to the stuff the way they act actually ultimately want it to be heard um so my main suggestion would be is, i i tell people is you you should think for your mix as if it was the last step like forget that there's gonna be a mastering step down the line and just ask yourself would you be happy if this went out into the world right now Right. Mm. Um, okay. And, yeah. and even listen to it. Like, take your mix and listen to it in the car or on headphones or earbuds or you know a neighbor's house or wh- whatever. Right? <laughs> you know, and 
say like, are you happy with this? Yeah, and that, that includes level, right? Mm. And okay, yeah, yeah, like everything. Like you should almost just imagine that it's going to the mastering engineer and you want to ask them for a flat transfer. <laughs> like, like that it's just right. which which used to be more of a thing when there was a technical thing like where you had tape and vinyl and people would say oh yeah. okay we don't want you to mess don't with change this. Just, anything don't change yeah. this yeah. we just want you to put this on the other format uh now that's a little different right but uh a flat transfer would be like copy paste the file yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. that would be so uh, strange the, we yeah. don't value your opinion at all we just want you to to call i don't like, know just paste it over here it? yeah <laughs> um but that's the way I would go into it, right? And then the reason is there'll be less surprises because now you can always take the limiting off, right? Like it, I said, this includes level. Like, so you should be at that level that you ultimately want it to be at. Um, you don't have to send it to the mastering engineer like that. You can turn off the limiter before you send it to the mastering engineer. I see, yeah. Right. Uh, or you could keep it on. There's people who are like, you know what? This is part of the sound. I just need you to mm-hmm. do this thing, which is fine. I just... it. it the, if the level's good, that's fine. I don't have to turn it up. You know, I yeah. just yeah, right. I just might make some other adjustments. And my work, and I think most mastering engineers, I think would would agree with this, is like our work is best when we're enhancing rather than fixing. So sure. So you know, if I get something in and I'm like, this sounds awesome, but you know what, man, this hook in the chorus, if I could just make that pop a bit more, this track will just be amazing right yeah yeah. and you could do that when you're really really close it's a lot harder when the track is way off and you got to do all this stuff and you know um to, mm-hmm. to, to fix it so so basically my, my main suggestion was to just imagine that you're not going to be mastering <laughs> and yeah, just, right. just and just hope that the mastering engineer comes back to says this was perfect i didn't have to do anything i'd assume it would right. be the, almost the same yeah. advice that a mixing engineer would give a recording yeah. engineer that's not yes. as good because yeah like the whole fix it in the mix thing it's yeah. like that's why it's it would be so cool to be in a position where you're recording a song and you actually have like a dope recording engineer who's like i like yeah. this mic yeah. because of this instead of like well i have an sm57 and i have a few condensers and that's what we got right you know yeah that's no it's crazy. absolutely the same like you know i you know if you could just turn up the faders and everything sounds awesome already that's great right because then you could just be yeah. creative and it's like you're, you're not taking up your brain process trying to fix technical issues you can just you know you you could just is it right i always forget what's which is the creative side of the brain right brain left brain i forget something but with the creative left, side, i think yeah. left is creative is it uh, yeah Whichever side is, is it? it? Yeah. 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 And, uh, I don't know, actually. But whatever it is, yeah. like, if you could try to be in that creative mindset more often, it's it helps, right? So, like, the the less technical issues that we have to deal with, the better it'll be. Right on. I look um, up what side of the brain. So, there are a couple of things that maybe are a little bit more, um, how would I say this, a little less exciting than talking about, like, cool audio stuff. But there are a couple of, like, <laughs> you know... Things that do happen in the mastering process, I know there's like some metadata that gets embedded into the the tracks. They are um, set to the appropriate sample rate, the appropriate bit depth, all that kind of stuff to go out depending on the medium. If it's going to be CD or I think streaming is 44.1 if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Yep. Uh, and then there's some other there'd be some other considerations there. Um, and so that's just like getting the title and it, it baked into the file so that when it 
gets played on the CD players that can read that. It'll display what the song's called or whatever, right? Yeah. Is there any sort of other stuff? I guess the the ISRC code is just to um, identify the song for royalty purposes. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. If it gets played on radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are those embedded? Is that like a, an easy sort of software thing or is that a... Yeah, it's just, a, it's a, actually a these days thing. it's super easy. There's like software, you put all the data in and it, it spits it out. And and so that, I mean, okay. that, that is, yeah, that's part of the, another part of the process. Like, uh, you know, what we call parts. Uh, so once everything's done yeah. and you have like your master, um, now you have your parts. Now you have your main 44.1, which would go for, uh, for streaming. Uh, it's the same bit, same sample rate that CDs are at. Um, but then you might have, uh, different sample rate for video. You might have, uh, radio edits, instrumentals, TV mm. mixes. Like there's all these sorts of things. So once the main master is, is completed, um, then there's sort of like a technical side of the job that, that we have to do in terms of organizing everything. Also, uh, QCing, like quality checking everything, making sure that there's no ticks and pops and, and all that oh, type of stuff. Okay, yeah, then yeah. that I will use headphones for when, when mm. I'm doing all that. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. And, and, uh, I would say, like, in my case, I do all that myself, but in, in some of the bigger facilities, you'll have like a dedicated like engineer who, who will kind of take care of that side of things. Yeah. That would be right on. Yeah. A- that would be so upsetting to be like in a, a like a huge mastering studio like or, or like just a part of a big team and it's like oh this is the guy that he just puts in the metadata yeah That's all well, you know what though i mean that, usually it's the assist, like an assistant and yeah i mean part of I mean, hopefully they're getting paid in this industry. That's not always the case, yeah. but I, I, yeah. any of the bigger facilities that should be paying those guys, I, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're, yeah. I mean, it's a job, right? But it's also a way yeah, to get yeah. in there and, at, you know, this is true. you get to learn, right? You get, I mean, I did that a little bit of that at some of the studios I was there and you get to listen to what the engineers, the more experienced the engineer did. Right? And it, it might true. seem boring, but it's, a, it allows you to kind of go, it's better oh, okay, than cleaning I, toilets. Yeah, which I already also yeah. did in one of my oh, internships. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's good. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not paid for that either. Yeah. <laughs> I was an unpaid janitor, basically. Oh, <laughs> I won't man. name the studio. They're gone now. Good. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, I took a tour through a CD duplication replication plant, and uh, the name's escaping me right now, but I. I there was a there was a, a fella in there and his job was to listen to every fifth vinyl and because they do vinyl as well so mm-hmm. there'd be a run of x number of vinyls he's like yeah my job is just to listen to every fifth one of these and make sure that it works yeah and like for sure that's their quality control yeah it's just part of the quality yeah. control yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. so like, i just listen to music all day it's great yeah. i was like all right sweet yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. gotta find the good yeah. in it right yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's way worse gigs than that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it's among other things that he would specialize in, but it was like, yeah, somebody does have to sit there and make sure that uh, there's nothing funky going on because sometimes these softwares, uh, man, I, I mean, one of the worst ones I've had on this podcast was like half of the episode didn't render. Right. It rendered oh, the first yeah. half and not the second half. And there was no, I still cannot figure out why that happened. Yeah. But it was like, well, now, every time I upload the episode uh, to the server, I just take 15 seconds to hit play, 
scroll, 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 I scroll see. every like yeah, five yeah. minutes or whatever. Just make sure, yeah, it's still still there. Okay, cool. cool. <laughs> I mean, sometimes yeah, you don't just sometimes hit the record button. You just don't. Yeah, you know? Are you guys using? Uh, do you use Sequoia or what do you use to? I actually use Reaper. <laughs> believe it or not. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah I know it's go. weird. Um, I, I was an early, early uh, more mastering engineers are starting to use it now, but I started using it back in 2012 and before people <laughs> did, and uh, yeah. it was interesting because I was going to go to Sequoia, so I I I was using a, a program called Soundblade uh, Sonic Solutions, which was the original like mastering software. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's what I was trained on uh, early on, and I really liked it. I'm a Mac guy, um, mm. but Soundblade just was buggy and it sounded really good like there was a weird it was weird it's, it had a sound to it that was great and but yeah. at a certain point you just i was you know pulling up my hair when i had hair it's gone now <laughs> maybe from Soundblade. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but at a certain point it's like it just was yeah it was brutal and um so I was, I was actually thinking about, I was going to go Sequoia and I was about to switch over to a PC and I thought, let's just try Reaper, it, it, you know, and yeah. you can just download and try it before you buy a license. And I was like, this does everything that Sequoia does for me, like that I needed it to do. And it costs like, what, $200 or something for the, yeah. for the license. Like, it's, Is there an advantage to Reaper or Sequoia, for example, Versus like Pro Tools, Cubase, Logic, and in terms of the mastering domain, is there functions that we don't have that you guys have? Yeah, and I, I haven't used Pro Tools in a while. I, I don't know about Cubase and Logic because I haven't used those in ages. Uh, but as far yeah. as Pro Tools, and this may have changed because I haven't really used it since Pro Tools 10. <laughs> it's just been a while. Yeah. But back then, yeah. um, one, it didn't have offline bouncing. So if I need to render something, you have to do it all in real time. Which is kind oh. of a pain in the ass when you you assemble everything. You've got everything's recorded into your computer after the analog chain. You've got clients in the room, and you've got an hour long record, and they can't get their CD for an hour because you're sitting there. Like, yeah. You know? uh, so there's that, and um, you well, you can't you can't. This doesn't affect me as much because I use a separate program for creating the CD. But Sequoia uh, and Reaper can make the can actually. Uh, process a CD. You can you can you can make a CD directly in the program. Oh, okay, um, I see. Yeah, oh, cool. where Pro Tools can, you have to export the tracks, then assemble I it see. somewhere else. Um, like I said, for me, I assemble it in a different program called Holfa anyway. Um, so mm-hmm. I I separate the process anyway. But you can in Sequoia and Reaper just have it in all in one program and just send it out. Um, and then the biggest one, which again, don't know if Pro Tools has changed this or not, but um. They, Sequoia and Reaper have a thing called object-oriented editing. Uh, Reaper calls it something different, but that's what it's called in Sequoia, um, where you can essentially put a plug-in chain directly on a region or a clip. Uh, so often I have to treat, like, let's say, the verse separately from the chorus. They might oh. they might need slightly different treatments. And so I can just put an EQ or an entire chain uh, on one section of the track, and it just mm. goes smooth. Everything's like latency compensated and everything and it's, wow. know, it's fantastic yeah and i believe in pro tools you you would have to like like use audio suite or something and process the file and but this yeah, all you works. either have to render it or maybe like cut the track yeah and put it on a different track which shouldn't click and pop but, but you never could. know yeah exactly and, and so yeah. and you don't want to take that chance when you're mastering right so uh, and it's yeah. a lot, that would just also just be slower right 
So yep. yes, um, it's be, it'd be a little cumbersome. Yeah, I yes. think Avid's going down, man. Like I, I <laughs> they, they're just been shady lately. I tried to get Pro Tools twelve, and I was like, I want to pay for this. I don't want to like rent it from you or like you know pay per month. And there's no way to do that. They offered me oh. they're like we'll give you five hundred dollars off of the membership, but from now on it's membership only. And after that five hundred dollars is gone, you're paying the same same as everybody else i'm like i don't want to do that i want to buy it (laughs) i guess that's yeah that's the world we live in now everything subscription yeah (laughs) yeah 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 um okay so i don't know how much time you've got left ruben we've we've really appreciate you uh i've got a bit of time yeah i had a quick game (laughs) i wanted to to sort of play here a little uh a little rapid fire um I've called it terms that people use all the time but don't understand. I'm going to throw them at you sure. and see if you can define what they are. Number one, dither. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's strange if you don't know what it is. It's literally just yeah. a bunch of random noise at a very, very low level that you apply to the audio. And I, I actually don't remember why this works. I know I studied it back when I was doing that till yeah, progress. Science. Um, but essentially when you're, when you're reducing the bit depth of something, let's say going from 24 bit to 16 bit, uh, if you apply a little bit of dither, um, you actually end up with a little less distortion. Uh, so you, you were trading off, you added some noise, really, really low level noise that really no one would notice, but it actually, you actually end up with less distortion. That's cool. Do you use yeah. do you use dithering in uh, in your process often? Yep. Yeah. So like when if I'm yeah. like when I'm producing the the 16 bit parts, I'll I will use dither. Yeah. Right on. For that. Yeah. Okay. Next one is uh, bit bit depth or bit rate, but I yeah. don't think bit rate is correct. I think it's no bit, bit depth, depth is right. right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> again the. The, the tech, the actual technical parts, I may have forgotten exactly, but it's essentially the amount of uh, the amount of bits, the amount of uh, um, basically resolutions, yeah, zeros and ones that are used for each audio sample, and you know the it's directly correlated to actually dynamic range when it comes to to music. Uh, again, sixteen bit between sixteen bit and twenty four bit, the dynamic range. I think sixteen bit's like ninety six dB of dynamic range, so. Even classical records aren't <laughs> don't have that much dynamic range. Uh, yeah, twenty four right. bit has like theoretically like one one twenty eight. I think I I can't remember. Um, so essentially, I mean, that, there's that from the playback standpoint. Technically, you have more dynamic range. You know oh, whether it right. matters or not. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether you um, use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but because you have more numbers to work with when you're actually using processes, like when you're processing in a in a, in a DAW. The, when you have a higher bit depth, it, uh, there's less sort of chopping off of, of numbers. And so you get a much more accurate representation when you're EQing or, or compressing or something like that. And so that's why I think most um, most DAWs, I think, internally process on like 64-bit or even higher. Oh, mm. shit. Yeah. And then you and only then like, turn chop, it around to you. You, you only dither down right at the end. Yeah. I, I see. see. Yeah. Oh, that's really, right. You know what? I This is a little aside, but like I was... I was getting really down the rabbit hole one time and I was trying to figure out if it mattered if I clipped on my API compressor plugin on Pro Tools because the red light goes off. I was like, yeah. how much does this actually matter? Because you're watching videos and people are like redlining all over the place and they don't care. And I'm yeah, like, okay. Yeah. So I, 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 I null tested the like a clipped signal versus not a clipped signal 
but like again matched them and mm-hmm. they nulled out. Yeah. So so I guess yeah, when you're Virgil in a, sort of when you're in a DAW, they like, an actual engineer will have to come on and explain this stuff. But like yeah, uh, no, when no. you're in a DAW, they're using like floating point, what's called floating point precision. You could go above zero all you want and bring it down, and it won't matter. Um, so, ah. yeah, yeah, it's only when you go to fixed point, which is what the delivery standards are, like the 16 bit, where it'll just go. I see. Um, yeah. So That's the cool. red lights aren't, aren't the worst yeah. in, uh, as in, you know, inside the session. Yeah. Uh, all right. S- related to this, uh, sample rate. Yeah. So th- that's what basically the amount of samples per second that are, are being used to, um, capture the audio. Uh, but I think people think of it incorrectly. Like a lot of people think that you, when you have more samples, it's more accurate representation but that's not really the case because of the way sampling theorem works again it's mm. my first year digital audio course that i don't yes. remember i think i've got a textbook somewhere that will <laughs> go into the nuts and bolts of that but really what it is is it's um when you go to a higher higher frequency it's not about more resolution in the time domain it's uh you just get a high like you just get a higher uh frequency cutoff so, such, so oh, yeah. I see. So it's at forty four point one, it's essentially half of your sample rate. So forty four point one, you you can't go above twenty two point oh five uh, kilohertz. And we can't hear even that. Well, high we can't usually. hear, and that's why they chose it. Yeah. What they found oh, though see. is that, and this gets into digital theory. We need filters when we're sort of converting from digital to analog, and vice versa. And those filters have can affect the phase response and time domain response and stuff like that. And so when it's that close to what we can hear, uh, like if you have a filter at 22K, you could probably hear that down to 10K, 8K, you know. So it is a, yeah. so it's not a, so what they found was, or like some people found was maybe that wasn't high enough, right? Not because we can, not because we can hear higher, but if you go to, let's say 96K, you can, put that filter way above what we can hear and it's not going to affect this you know it's not going to affect the auditory range Mm, because it would have some kind of downward exponential uh harmonic effect on on the information below it yeah exactly if you i see yeah when it gets close yeah and and that's i think where people get it wrong and i find it's like old school guys who don't really are still (laughs) you know don't fully understand digital versus analog. It what it is. It, it what it isn't is it. Digital isn't about capturing a certain amount of steps, and that's the resolution. It's it's uh okay. Yeah, like it. The, it's hard to explain, but the way it comes out, we don't hear sort of discrete samples. Once it goes through the converter, we're mm-hmm. hearing analog. Digital's just right. a storage. Okay. Digital's just a storage sure. medium, right? Sure. Yeah. Um. Man. Oh yeah. That just brought to mind. It always blows my mind that like sound can even be stored in the first place. I know. And, like turned back <laughs> into sound. Like it's like it's completely it's completely magical to me even <laughs> still. Um, so so like ninety six k. Like is that worth it for anybody or is forty eight fine? No, I think ninety six k is worth it. I don't know if forty k is high enough. I think there were back when they were initially doing the the research, they found I think sixty k was probably the the good sweet point. Sweet spot, mm. Um, mm. but they needed to fit a certain amount of audio on a CD, and this is like 1981 or two or whatever it was. Um, so they end up doing like 44.1, and then 48k. I think it's for video. Uh, no, not I think it is for video. <laughs> um, I can't remember why they 
I, I don't remember why they had those different uh, rates, but, uh, but because 60K is not a thing, we don't have it, and it's not going to be adopted anytime soon. Yeah. 88.2 or 96K is probably the next step up. Um, and I go 96K because it's just more of a standard than 88.2. So, and there's really mm-hmm. no difference okay. between those two. Yeah. So yeah. I just go 96 because it's, it's at that, at that 2X rate, it's more of a standard. Do you think that uh, as a mixer, I should be mixing at 96? Because that, I mean, kills your <laughs> CPU, right? Yeah, and, and, that's, yeah. and that's the question, right? So it's a trade-off, right? So like yeah. the thing is, when you work at the higher sample rates, in theory, when you do things non-linear processes like compression, distortion, stuff like that, um, you're going to get less what they call aliasing, which is kind of what this distortion that sounds digital to us. When things sound digital, that's mm. kind of what it is. And you get, once you get to like 96K, that's pretty much non-existent. So you can actually get a much mm. more probably analog sounding mix if you work at 96K. But then you cut your processing power in half. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, and so my, the, the question yeah. is, you know, what, what trade-off is okay? Um, and most, but the things most good programs now do like, will oversample and do their nonlinear processes up high and then bring it down. And so I don't know if it's that big a deal. Sure. It's a 96 K anymore because a lot of them will do it internally. I see. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to look into this now. Now I'm going to go. You triggered something. The one thing about 96 K is that I'm starting to hear that there are some labels that are, that want 96 K now. It's not all of them. Not all of them, uh, but I I have had requests from some labels for 96K files. Uh, mm. You know, and obviously you can upsample it or whatever, but it's not really 96K. Um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think they want a future-proof maybe for future, you know, revenue streams, streaming formats or download formats. And so that's one thing to all consider. Right. Um, like if you're a mixer, if there's a label, you might need to talk to them before getting started and see what their delivery requirements are. Ah, that's mm-hmm. a good call. Right. But I mean, even from the, the get go, when you're, when you're recording, right. You would need to be recording at 96. That's the ideal. Truly. Like, yeah. Like if, yeah. if that was a case of like their delivery requirement was 96 K, you want to start recording at 96. Yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise, I mean, your plugins are, your plugins are running at 96, but the audio is still. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. 48. Yeah. But, you're not so I guess get it, the- it does make a difference, but, but not. Yeah, you're not going to get the not full the benefit way. unless you're doing it from the beginning. Uh, the question yeah. is how, how much, like, how much of that benefit is, you know, like how how important is it, and is it worth, you know, maybe not having as much creative freedom to work with right. in the process mm, in terms of yeah. having ten plugins on your vocal, like, a- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, two more quick ones: harmonic distortion. Yep. Yeah, that's essentially just, um, you know, if you think about sound and we have, you know, every sound is filled up with harmonics. So you have your fundamental and your your overtones and above that. Uh, harmonic distortion is when whatever you're running it through adds harmonics that aren't there in the original signal. So if it's mm-hmm. adding adding other like second or third harmonics or seventh, eighth, ninth sense harmonics, yeah. uh, it's, it's just essentially adding more to the signal that wasn't there. In the past, and that could be good or bad, depending on what you're yeah, trying to right. achieve. Yeah, right on. And the last one, uh, clipping. 
Right. So clipping is like, if you think of a, a sine wave, right? Like in, if you think of just a pure sine wave, clipping is where at the top of the wave, you just chop it off. There's no limiting. Mm-hmm. There's no compression. It's just gone. Yeah. You chop it off the tops. Yeah. And that can sometimes sound good, right? Like yeah. I, I know like mixers that use clippers mm-hmm. to like sort of have an effect on things. Well, right? it, it, it can sound better. better. It can sound better than lip, like uh, limiting and clipping. I oh, sorry, limiting and compression sometimes. Uh, Cause one thing we have to realize, like our ears don't react that fast. So sometimes there are transients that happen faster than our ears can, can perceive them. Oh, wow. And so in that case, a clipper might be better because a clipper is just taken off the top of the waveform. And if that top of the waveform is fast enough that we're not perceiving it, we're not going to hear it as clipping, but we're going to be able to bring mm-hmm. the volume up uh, uh, mm-hmm. from oh, a yeah, perspective. Yeah. Or you might yeah. be able to bring up lower detail, like on the snare, you might be able to bring up the ring on that or something right. like that. Um, oh. A compressor or a limiter, what it does is it'll see, oh, there's a peak and it'll bring the whole thing down. So it's not bring it's a, a limiter. It's not going to just take down that peak. It's going to take down everything that's below it as well. So there, there are times when you might not want that. And that's where tape like tape, when people hit drums, like record t- drums to tape and hit it really hard, it's essentially clipping the tops, but leaving the bottom, that sort of tone section of the sound intact. Mm. Yeah. Shit. Okay. I have, I have one related, one related thing, uh, to this. Uh, <laughs> so I've heard of, the, of, of this happening and I, I'm not sure if you do this or not. Um, and I've heard of other mastering places that do this, but like, let's say I've got my, um, I've got my mix bus, uh, my, you know, all my stuff's going through there and I've got my bus where I'm going to print. Right. And I put my mix bus at like half a DB above zero mm-hmm. so that it's actually like the red lights are on. It's actually clipping quote unquote in pro tools. And then it prints to the, to the, to the final track, having lost that half DB, uh, at the top. Um, like pe- people have expressed that you can do that and not really notice. And that's like a nice little cheat way to like <laughs> get it uh, louder. Like ha- have you experimented with that? And, and, and what do you, what are your thoughts? There? Uh, I have. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're clipping, right? That's, that's all it is. It's just hard clipping. Right. And yeah. of course, and it's on, on some material, of course you can get away with it. Right. The question is whether you want to send something out that you haven't heard properly. And, and that you're not listening to as you're mixing. Because mm. if you're doing it that way, you're not hearing the clipping. That's eventually going to happen. Right? Mm, and sure. Maybe, maybe it's inaudible, right? Maybe, uh, but maybe it isn't. Right? Maybe yeah, it's actually right. going to, you know, audi- audibly clip. So. Right. So you just have to listen to it after the fact and see if it, if it made a difference. Yeah. Like, not. I mean, if, you hear the if it were me, I would rather just use a clipper pro- plugin. You know, I see. and to get that half dB extra, sure. then at least you can hear it, and you can make yeah. decisions um, in the mix based on that. Because like maybe everything's cool, but there's this one section where you hear like the kick drum clipping, and if you can mm-hmm. hear it, then you can adjust the kick drum for that one section, and every the whole track's clean, right? Whereas right if, mm-hmm. if you did it the other way, you might not know until later. But yeah, yeah, I got you. But it works. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, wow. man. Um, wh- uh, one other thing I wanted to, t- I, I, again, I, tell me if, if we're running out of time here, but um, is there any 
Are there any ear training exercises yes. for people to better understand um, the frequency spectrum and how to hear, you know, which each sort of zone and from, you know, 100 hertz to 20K or I guess, you know, 40 hertz to 20K um, to, to better understand and better, better identify what's going on in those those areas? Yeah, I mean... Th- as like like we mentioned earlier, when when I was at McGill, we actually had a full two year program on that. Um, it where mm-hmm. there was like a computer program, and they would help us ident- help train us in t- identifying those ranges. Um, there is a program. I think it's a book slash program that's out there by um, a guy named Jason Corey, who also went to the McGill program. And I don't remember where he's teaching now, but I if I believe it's. Just called technical ear training or something like that. But I bet if you just Google Jason Corey and the ear training, um, that would come up. And that that's what I would recommend just because that's what I've used in the past. Uh, I'm sure there are nice. others out there that would be that are just as good. Um, but I, I would start there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right on. I'm out of questions. I don't <laughs> yeah. Know yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you wanted to, uh, to touch on or anything you want to sort of talk about in terms of your services, how people can reach you. Um, got any like cyber Monday promotions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it cyber Monday still? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. According to, according uh, to the no. car dealerships, it is. <laughs> uh, well, people can reach me either through my website, mojito mastering.com or through Instagram, which is also, um, well, actually that's just my name, Ruben Ghosh. Um, uh, I think those are probably the best ways Instagram or Instagram or my Facebook, sorry, Facebook, Facebook too, yeah. actually, but Instagram yeah, or my website. Yeah. Are probably the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, can't recommend highly enough. If you're, yeah. uh, if you're an artist or a, a producer or a mixer and, uh, First of all, if you're not using mastering, you should. I, I personally think you should be uh, for the reasons that we stated before, just because it is sort of a, a final process, a finishing touch, a second pair of ears. Um, and and uh, I just think it's a it's an important part of the process and it's w- very worth doing. Uh, and if you are going to do that, please go to Mojito Mastering. <laughs> Ruben's awesome, as you could tell from this podcast. Uh and he'll work with you and and make the track sound good. And uh, it's just it's always it's it's always a blast. Thanks so, so. And um, I, I will say yeah, just man. just to touch really quickly on what you said, but I I, I, mean, say, I agree that people should be using should be mastering with a yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, But right. at the same time, I, I'm also don't I, I remember that there's some mastering issues get really adamant about that, right? And yeah, I I don't think it's a problem for people to. Like, if you want to master your own stuff, that's fine. Like, I, I don't think there's any reason why not. The reason you would use a mastering engineer, like, you just ask yourself, are you getting the results that you want, right? Are you yes. happy mm-hmm. with what you're getting? Are you happy with the way you're sounding? Are you getting, are you achieving career goals? You know, um, yep. and yeah, if there's, if you're not, is there something sonically in your recordings that might help there? All those things are reason to go to a mastering engineer. But at the same time, I'm also, I'm pretty, I'm I'm actually completely okay with mastering your own stuff. It's just you have to identify yourself whether a, a, a separate mastering engineer, another person, would be able to help you. And I think in most cases, you know, they can. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, so you, you said yeah. getting a second pe- pair of ears, and it's yeah, like, exactly. you know, you get a second pair of ears, and it's like, oh, yeah, I got my guitar player to listen to it. It's like, cool, yeah, he's going to maybe hear some <laughs> stuff, but it's like, you're getting a second pair of ears that, that those ears, their job is to listen to thousands yeah. of things, yeah. like your thousand things that you've mastered, and make these, these tweaks that, to be honest, I can barely hear some of the tweaks, uh, you know, but... I know that they're being made and like, it's like, well, if I can't hear them or maybe some of the tweaks I can't hear, it's like, well, then do you need to make them? And it's like, well, these things are perceived like definitely on a subconscious level, you know, Mm. people can identify a bad mix and they maybe won't go, oh, that's, that's a bad mix or a bad master, but they'll go, yeah, this song, it's not that good, you know? Well, yeah. It's like, well... well, actually, like as an example, I was listening to um, uh, I was listening to a track the other day that wasn't mastered by myself, but I was just evaluating it, and yeah. uh, it was a great master. And what I found what what was interesting about this uh, was that the it was the master was actually quieter than the reference mix <laughs> that they are wow. that the mix oh, wow. are done. But the what the mastering engineer had done was really brought out the um, this this really catchy hook in the chorus that the guitar yeah. the guitars were playing and the bass was kind of doubling it as well. And, and so even though the master was qu- quote unquote quieter, it actually grabbed your attention more and the hook yeah. was there. And I, I think it keeps you engaged. Like as a listener, I was like, I'm, I would much rather listen to this. And I think I would actually, even on a subconscious level, um, just remember this track more because the hook yes. came through so much more. Whereas the other one was louder, but just everything was smashed and not quite as clear. And, um, it's absurd how much this stuff affects stuff. Yeah, like, and so it's a subconscious thing it, that yeah, it's not it's not something that someone might like the average listener would identify, but on a subconscious level, that's what people gets people yes. listening to music, right? Well, and that's why what, do what, people like louder music? They're not going right. well. I like this more because it's louder. Yeah. But you know, when they hear a louder thing, they feel it more. They feel it know? right, and that's what it was in the in this case. It was like the quieter one actually grabbed your attention more, even without yes. volume compensating. Just listening to them back and. Back yes. to back, but that's the type of subtle thing that the mastering engineer, this mastering engineer, was able to do for this client. This stuff is just so cool. Yeah. I, it's just the more I learn about it, it's the coolest shit ever. Um, <laughs> in the nerdiest way, but it's it's yeah. the coolest shit ever. You know, yeah. like <laughs> the the coolest things are also the nerdiest things. Right, by the true. Way. <laughs> like if magic were real, it would be nerdy as fuck. You know, like it is real. Uh, yeah, I, I, just to build on that, it's like. It's it's not that we can't hear it. It's like I've run into this so many times as a as a mixer. It's like I know there's something wrong, yes, but I don't know what to do yes. to change it because yeah. I just don't have that experience or I haven't been in this like situation. That thing on the radio. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like, and it could be just like, man, I remember um, I was at a, a mastering studio way back in the day, and and uh, and the gentleman there was like, I, I showed him a, this mix I was working on. It was unrelated to the project at hand, but. Uh, it just came about, and he's like, he's like, man, if you just cut, like, 2 dB at 250, like, watch this, you know, snap, cuts it. Yeah. I was like, whoa, yeah. you yeah. know, this yeah. thing is, like, yeah. this this track's killing all of a sudden. So it's like, but I didn't know that, and this was, like, 10 years ago. Like, I, you know, I just didn't didn't know to, and that's not going to work for every track, but it worked for that one, mm-hmm. right? And, and so this is when people like yourself, Ruben, have the ears to go, yeah, this just needs half a dB out at, at 350, you know, boost a little 5K. All right, there you go. Whereas the mixer, you know, if I master my own stuff, I'm just going to master it the same way I mixed it. Right, yeah. I'm going to yes. add, exactly. add more of the stuff I was the adding same. in the first place. That's yeah. not necessarily going <laughs> to... 
so yeah so i think it's it's more um you know it'll, it'll come back and i'll be like yeah this is killing but i won't know why or that's that's or a won't know. much better way of yeah. putting it it's true right. yeah it's the same yeah. as guitar players who have those pedals they don't really understand like <laughs> i was talking about brent mason he has this one pedal it's it's an the ep booster and it's just from an echoplex preamp or whatever and it's just the preamp and he's like I don't even know what this does, but I just leave it on. I just like the sound of yeah, it. Yeah, sure. You know, he's not going like, well, it adds saturation and it boosts this. He's like, I just like the sound. Right. You know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's <laughs> enough sometimes. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, look, we'll let you go, Ruben. Thank you so much well, thank for you guys. taking the time today. This well, was super, super, super fun. fun. Yeah. Oh, our, yeah. Our pleasure. Uh, once again, Mojito Mastering here in Toronto. Um, and uh, if we didn't mention this already, this is a process that's completely touchless as it were like you send your files over to ruben yep. <laughs> he does his thing he flips them back to you if you need a revision you flip them back to him and he flips them back to you and and it's it's done right yep. you don't need to go to into a studio you don't need to uh to travel anywhere um so it, it is a super convenient super sort of streamlined swift process so um so definitely check it out mojito mastering.com um yeah man. all right so uh, we're gonna leave you with that um thank you so much for listening to the show if you would like to reach out to us we are music guy podcast at gmail.com the website is music guy podcast.com for all the past episodes um and present and future and i am at alro music on social media Michael is at Bruno the Meek on Instagram. And uh, we're going to leave you with the song of the week by a friend of the show and supporter, uh, Trevor Humphrey, who is actually the person who kind of got me into recording way, way back when we were, uh, we were neighbors back in Scarborough. And I did some of my very, very first recordings with my band at uh, Trevor's studio in his basement of his house. He now runs a production studio called Over the Hump Media, specializing in audio and visual recordings. Trevor is a songwriter, music producer, sound engineer, and video editor. Uh, you can Google Over the Hump Media or look it up on YouTube for videos featuring music, how-to, and lifestyle content. And you can get in touch with Trevor at overthehumpmusic at gmail.com. Uh, Trevor's latest song is one he's written for his baby boy, Henry, and uh, it's about being a young parent and everything you got to do for your baby uh, in early parenthood. It's called All I Can Do, and uh, we'll leave you with this song, and we'll see you guys next week for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Keep messed up.
Say da da, da 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 da. 